and good evening. All right. <laughs> Let's try that again. Good evening. good evening. Very good. Very good. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we'll, I'll try not to keep you long here tonight. We do have a couple of things to do uh, after church tonight and, and then preparations, of course, for family camp. Uh, that starts on Monday of next week, and I have a few announcements to make regarding that. We'll do that after the preaching time here tonight, okay, and right before our prayer time. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, we started in chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, and our text tonight is going to be verses 6 through 18 down through the end of the chapter, and we'll not work all the way through this tonight, but we'll kind of bounce around in several of the verses uh, as we uh, unpack these and make application for us. But uh, previously, we've, we've worked our way through verses 1 through 5. And so let's just read verses 1 through 5, and I'll remind you of what we talked about before we get to our text here tonight. Chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that you both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Uh, we, when we started this, this chapter uh, we made note of the, the very first word that Paul uses here. He says uses the word finally. And the way that we would use that word, it would be um, like this is the last thing. And it sort of carries that meaning, but it actually really means and carries the meaning of, of, of there's still something remaining. In other words, Paul's saying, we're, we're rounding the corner here. I'm going to sort of put this letter to an end, but there's still something that's important to say as I close this letter out. And, and we saw what, what Paul was expressing here. The thing that was important to say was he, he, the very next word was, brethren, pray for us. And we talked about how Paul was expressing mutual dependence on each other here. He says, brethren, pray for us. And we, we made the application to all of that uh, without getting back into all the details, the, the main application was that we all need each other in the church. Uh, we're brethren. We're a family. Every part is essential, and there's not one that's better than another. Um, we all have different roles that we play. We all have different gifts that we've been given, but we need to understand that our particular gift, whatever that means or whatever that is, doesn't make us better than another person with a different gift. Now, uh, there's, it, you know, when it comes to pastoring and so on, because I am the pastor of the church, that doesn't make me better than you. I have a different gift than you do. I have a different role to play, but it doesn't make me better than you. And there are, there are, there are uh, pastors who, who preach better than others, but that doesn't make them good pastors. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are men who have different gifts for different roles uh, and, and, and different abilities. And, and the point is, 
is that the gifts are to be used, they're given of the Lord, number one, to be used for the good of the whole so that the body is edified and Christ is glorified. And so there's mutual dependence on each other, that we all need each other, and there's not one part that's more important than another in the Lord's church. And Christ is the only head that there is, and he is to be magnified and glorified in his church. Amen? So Paul expressed mutual dependence. Then he says, pray for us, and then he expresses what should be prayed for. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And the thing that Paul expresses that needs to be prayed for here is that pray that the gospel gets out and it gets out effectively uh, and that it, it is able to work effectually in hearts. Notice how he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. That carries the meaning of being unhindered or being weighed down it, or, or being unimpeded. In other words, he says, pray that the gospel and the word of God moves forward unimpeded, without, uh, without uh, um, hindrance. And he says, pray that the word of God is also glorified. That meant to render or esteem glorious. And we talked about how the word of the Lord is honored when people receive the truth, when people are saved, when the word of God effectually works and it yields fruit in people's lives. And then notice that Paul adds at the end of verse one, even as it is with you. So he's talking about the word of the Lord being unimpeded, that it produces fruit. And that, and, and then he says, even as it is with you. And what Paul is saying is, pray that the word of God has the same effect here where I'm preaching now as it did with you when I first preached it to you. What a great prayer to pray. Do you pray for Brother George in preaching the gospel? Do you really pray for him? That the word of the Lord has free course in people's hearts. That it's glorified, that people receive the truth. That it works effectually in people, in people's hearts for boldness. Paul, Paul asked churches to pray for him all the time. Pray that we would have boldness to speak the truth. And then in verse 2, he said, Pray that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. And we talked about how there are those who despise the truth, who will do anything that they can to stop the message of salvation and the application was that God's servants need our prayers for God's deliverance so that they can continue preaching the word and accomplish the work of the ministry now then we got to verse three and we made note of the fact that verse three sort of switches gears a little bit and Paul moves on to another important thing that's left to say and we noted that because of the word, but. So verse 3 says, but the Lord is faithful. And we talked about how that word means moreover or in addition to. And so Paul says, in addition to you praying that the word of the Lord is not hindered and that it bears fruit, here's something else that's important. You need to remember that God is faithful. And we talked about the faithfulness of the Lord, which was a theme 
that Paul mentions many times in his letters to the churches. What was God faithful to do? Well, verse 3 says, The Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. We said that God is faithful to establish you or strengthen you, and he's faithful to keep you from evil. And we said what that meant was to be on guard against the thing that is hurtful for you. Amen. Praise the Lord that he is faithful, watching out for you and for me to guard against the thing that is hurtful to us. Paul said, or Jesus said to Peter, rather, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Why did he say that? Because he said, Satan desires to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Praise the Lord that he's faithful. Amen. Though men can't be trusted, God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his purposes. He's always one who can be confided in. When men are unbelieving, when men are unkind, when men would do you wrong, we can always go to the Lord and always find him to be one in whom we can confide and one who is a protector. And so when you're under attack, whether it's from criticism or slander or persecution or any other thing, we can rely on the faithfulness of God and if you weren't here for that message last week, go back and listen to it. You'll be blessed, I believe. Not because I preached it, but because the Word of God talks about the faithfulness of the Lord. What a wonderful subject. Not only is he faithful to establish you, strengthen you, keep you from evil, but verse 4 tells us he's faithful to work in you. Paul said here, we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. The Lord is faithful to work in you. He's currently working in you. He will be at work in your life. And that fits right in line with what the word of God says, that he that, he ha that hath begun a good work in you will also perform it. And faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Praise the Lord that he doesn't leave us alone, that he's faithful to work in our life. And then verse 5, the Lord is faithful to direct you. The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. We said that the word direct there means to make straight or to guide. And it carries the meaning of removing the obstacles that are in the path. And how God is faithful to direct into the love of God. And we talked about how we need God's direction. We need God's guidance because our heart cannot generate spiritual things. Our heart cannot generate that kind of love. And then the patient waiting for Christ. And we talked about how that meant waiting without anxiety. And we discussed briefly that one of the things the church in Thessalonica needed correction on was regarding the return of the Lord. And the patient waiting for Christ was waiting without anxiety in the church. There were some in the church who were, had the wrong idea concerning the return of the Lord. Some thought that the rapture had already happened. They were worried about their dead loved ones. Did they miss it? Some thought that the day of the Lord was at hand. They were already in the, the tribulation time, and Paul was correcting those deficiencies regarding the return of the Lord. And so this is a connection with that and this was one of the things that the church needed correction on. 
regarding the, the return of Christ. And that leads us actually into our text verses. Because there were some things going on in the church that were directly related to their wrong idea concerning the return of the Lord. And it was impacting the way that they lived their daily life. So let's look at verse 6 and following. Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this, command, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Tonight, we're going to start digging into these verses here and these particular corrections that Paul needed to make in the church. And here he's dealing with, as he did in the first letter that he wrote to them, with the situation that was produced by those who took the wrong attitude concerning the second coming of Christ. And it seems that there were those in Thessalonica who had given up their work and they had abandoned the routine claims of everyday life in anticipation of this soon return of Jesus Christ. And the idea kind of is, hey, the Lord's going to come any second. It's going to be just maybe tomorrow. So why work? Why do these normal, mundane, regular things we're excited about the return of the Lord, and it seems as though this is the case. That some abandon the routine, everyday life in anticipation of Christ. That abandonment of work for everyday living turned into idleness because the Lord hadn't come, and they still weren't working, and the Lord hadn't come. And they still weren't working, and so it turned into idleness. That idleness then led to a way of living that was not Christ-like, and it was not acceptable in a New Testament church. And so Paul needs to correct this issue inside of the church. Paul uses a vivid word to describe these people. Look at verse 6 again. Paul says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Paul uses the word disorderly to describe those who were brothers or sisters in the Lord who were living this way. 
The word disorderly here is the Greek word that means irregular. It means out of step. It means out of line. It means unarranged. It's the exact same word that's translated as unruly in 1 Thessalonians 5. Turn over there, just one page back. And note what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. He says, we, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Paul says there's a warning that needs to be given to those that are unruly. What it means is that these were unarranged, and the word also carries the meaning of those that are insubordinate. And so the idea here is that Paul says, uh, and we'll get to how to handle them and how Paul says how to deal with them, but he says there are those who are living this way. Here's some of the things that they're doing that manifest how they're living. It's a disorderly walk. They're irregular. They're out of step. They're unarranged. They're insubordinate. They're not in line. Their behavior, and what was their behavior? Well, look down to verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Their behavior led to Paul needing to address this issue and to correct it in the church. And what we're going to see in this portion of Scripture is two basic things. We're going to see these fatherly reprimands that Paul gives, and then at the end we're going to see these final remarks to encourage and these are the two basic things that we'll see in this portion, and we'll get through as far as we can tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us understand your word, and then, Lord, I pray that you'd make the application for us in our life, that it would challenge us to more Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first thing that we're going to look at is these fatherly reprimands that Paul gives, and we find those in verses 6 through 15. And there were a few important things that Paul needed to say to the church as he closes out this letter, and he needed to say them in order to correct some deficiencies that would be very damaging to the church as a whole. Now, everything that Paul says here, that didn't necessarily apply to everyone in the church. It was some in the church. And yet, this letter was to be read to the whole church, and therefore it became good instruction for everyone. And I would say to us tonight, we can find good instruction in this for us as well. What I want to do, first of all, is point out the, recip the recipients of these reprimands. Who exactly is Paul talking about when he writes these things? Who are the recipients of these corrections that needed to be made? Well, first of all, we find that, that Paul is writing to the lazy in the church. Look at verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you, this we, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all. Paul is writing specifically to those that are lazy. And he says here that I hear or we hear that there are some who, who are walking disorderly. You're unarranged in your life. And the reason is because you're not working. You're not working at all. 
And he says, even we commanded this to you when I was with you before, that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Evidently, even when Paul was at Thessalonica the fir- uh, before, he was aware of some in the church who just seemed to be floating through life. And their floating through life became uh, something that was imposing upon other people to support them. And so he reminded them that even when I was with you, I commanded you this, or we commanded you, that if you didn't work, you shouldn't eat. Now that was something that was a, a somewhat of a proverb of the day, that it was an important thing uh, to, to the Jew, and we don't have the time to, to, to flesh all of that out and explore that. But these, these, these people also would have known exactly what Paul is talking about. And it's a simple principle. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. You shouldn't be one who needs somebody. If you're of age and, and capable, you should not be a, a one who, who has, who's, who's mooching off of other people and who has to have other people support you. The principle is simple, and yet it's very profound. It's a principle that continues to this day. Now, it doesn't seem to be one that's widely held in our current welfare culture you know uh, you get to stay home and get a paycheck from the government in our welfare culture that absolutely should not be the case for a Christian for God's people God has ordained from the very beginning of creation that man should work God put Adam in the garden to tend it and to keep it originally Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Work is implied there. Amen? So from the very beginning, even in in the, the perfectness of creation, God intended for Adam to do some work. Well, then when Adam sinned and he fell and he was expelled from the garden of eden god said this in genesis 3 and verse 19 in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground the principle of work didn't change did it it probably just got harder but it didn't change and we need to understand the sanctity of labor that it's a command of the Lord but we also need to understand something that God knows exactly what we need and God has built in something to us to give value to labor to mankind. We also need to understand that there's a powerful testimony in it. What am I saying here? Well, there's real value in work. You know how you do a job or you you, you start a task and you work through the task and you get done with the task and you get this sense of accomplishment, this sense of well-being that you did a, a, a hard job and you did it good and it's done. I used, to, I used to love that feeling when I was in construction, building homes, houses. For a lot of years, I, I built a lot of homes. And there was always something that, that gave me a sense of pride as you work on this job and you start to see it come together and finally by the end of it, this thing is done, it's built and you put so much effort into it and you feel like, hey, I did a good job. There's a sense of well-being that's there. There's value in it. 
Usually, those who find themselves in all kinds of trouble are people who have too much time on their hands. Amen? They're idle. And a way to keep people out of trouble is to make them busy. Keep them busy. We really ought to try to train our kids to work. It's, it's hard. <laughs> but we ought to try our best to train them to work. I remember my mom put this inside of me. She, she uh, instilled this in me from the time I was young. And I've told you the story before. By the time I was 12 years old, my mom's like, if you don't want wrinkled shirts, you're, you're ironing them. If you want clean clothes to wear, you're washing them. <laughs> and that was like, hey, okay, whatever. But by the time you wear the same clothes, you know, for weeks at a time and you run, run out of things that you need, uh, you start to realize, hey, I probably should go wash my clothes. <laughs> and my mom took me to the washing machine. This is how you do it. This is how you sort clothes. This is what you need to do. This is how much you put in. Now it's yours. And she instilled in me a work ethic. Uh, I, from the time I was young, by, by, as a teenager, I couldn't stand my room to be a mess. Couldn't stand it. I had to, every, every time I'd come home from church, I had to take my clothes off. I had to hang them up in the closet. I had to put them away. I couldn't stand my room to be a mess. But that was something that my mother trained into me. By the time I was 14 years old, I was basically paying my own way. Now, I'm not saying this to, like, to try to, to, to do anything other than say, I praise my mother for the work ethic that she put into me. Maybe except for the food and the place, that the roof over my head, anything extra, anything else, I was basically paying my own way because I had to work a job to do that. By the time I was 16 years old, I bought my first car from money that I had saved from work. And on and on it goes. And the point I'm making is that there's something very valuable in instilling work and a work ethic in our children. And here's the real point. The Christian, the Christian should be a more conscientious worker than anybody else on their job. And why? It's a testimony issue. It's a factor in our testimony as we reflect and portray Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice some of Paul's statements here regarding work that become great applications for us. Now, notice in verse 7. All right, so, so Paul says in verse 6 that there are people that walk disorderly, not after the, the tradition or the teaching of, of the word that has been received of us. And then we go to find out that he's talking about people who aren't working. People who refuse to. Not people who can't get a job, but people who refuse to work. So then he says in verse 7, For yourselves know how ye, excuse me, for yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. And this, this application that comes out of this regarding work is that Paul, Paul basically says, uh, we wanted to be an example to you. And for us as a Christian, we ought to be an example when it comes to work. 
We ought to set an example. We ought to be an example when it comes to work. One preacher said this. He said, in regards to Christians in the workforce, few are happy in their work. Many more, many more are poor workers. You show me a lazy, irritating Christian on the job, and I'll show you an office, a store, a customer, a shop that isn't interested in his message. I think that's a powerful statement. A lazy, irritating worker on the job? Fat chance of being a real witness for Jesus Christ. Work ethic matters for all kinds of things, including testimony. The surveillance camera of the world is watching God's people. There's a story that's told of David Brainerd when he was among the American Indians. And he stopped at a place where he offered to instruct and teach them concerning Christ and Christianity. And he was met with this reply from the, from the Native Americans. He said, why should, they said, why should we desire, or excuse me, why should you desire the Indians to become Christians? Seeing that the Christians are so much worse than the Indians. The Christians lie. They steal. They drink worse than the Indians. They first taught the Indian to be drunk. They steal to such a great degree that their rulers are obliged to hang them for it. And even that is not enough to deter others from the practice. We will not consent, therefore, to become Christians, lest we should be as bad as they. We will live as our fathers lived and go where our fathers are when we die. By no influence of David Brainerd could he change their decision. And the reason was is because of a prior bad testimony that was given to these people. So Paul says here in verse 7, Yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. The principle is we ought to be an example when it comes to work. But there's another one. Look at verse 8. He says, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Here's another principle that comes out of this. And Paul is basically saying, Hey, don't be a freeloader. Don't be a freeloader. He says, We didn't eat any man's bread for naught. It basically means gratuitously, or it means at another person's expense or burden specifically Paul and his company didn't eat at another person's burden and Paul reminded them how they wrought with labor and travail night and day that we wouldn't be chargeable to any of you and the idea is that they themselves worked with their hands to earn a living in some cases it was day and night that they wouldn't become a burden to somebody else. Now look at verse 9. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. He says, not because we don't have the authority to live off of you or, or the right to live of the gospel, but we chose rather to be an example and not to be burdensome. Now look at verse 12. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Paul couldn't be more clear here. 
Paul commanded them in the name of the Lord to stop freeloading and go to work. He says on top of that, you're to do that in quietness. In other words, he says, put your head down, go to work, mind your own business, and stop meddling in the affairs of other people. And then the final phrase is really pointed. He says, and to eat their own bread. In other words, work with your hands, provide for yourself, eat your own food, and not mooch off of other people. That was the instruction that Paul was giving to those in the church. But friend, that principle carries over into other things as well. For example, if you borrow something from somebody else and it breaks while you're using it, you need to replace it or you need to fix it so that it doesn't become a burden to somebody else. Don't be burdensome to another. This last winter, with all this snow, I asked Pastor Humphrey if I could borrow a snowblower. And he's like, sure, go ahead and borrow it. So I'm using it and blowing snow, and I returned it, thinking everything's good. The next time I saw him, he's like, hey, uh, were you having trouble blowing a lot of snow? I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it was blowing just fine. He goes, well, the shear pin was broken on the, on the auger. I'm like, oh, it broke? Like, oh, yeah, it happens. You know, you hit ice chunks or rocks. I'm like, hey, I'll buy you a bunch of shear pins. I'll replace that. And he's like, oh, no, it happens all the time. I got a bunch of them. I didn't, I didn't like that. I wanted to replace it, but he wouldn't let me do it. Because I used his equipment, and it broke while I was using it. And that's the principle. That's the point. You borrow something from somebody, and it breaks while you're using it. Fix it or replace it. Don't just give it back and take advantage of somebody becoming a burden on them. And so Paul says, don't be a freeloader. It's not okay. There's no room for that in a New Testament church. Amen. You're welcome. Look at the second part of verse 8. He says, but rot with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. So Paul says, not only should you work, but when you work, you should work hard and you should work long if that's what's needed. We labored day and night, travail. There was, a, there was a story of an old plumber who was admonishing his young apprentice who always seemed to be taking coffee breaks and never seemed to be able to stick to it and get the work done. And the, the old plumber said to his apprentice, he said, when I was an apprentice... He said, we used to lay the first two lengths of pipe, and then the boss would turn the water on, and it was our job to stay, in head, stay ahead of him. I don't think that works really well, but the idea was, you got to work hard, and you need to work fast. It was demanded that he work hard. Well, Paul's reprimand in this case to the church and the correction that needed to be made was first to the lazy Christian. Put your head down, go to work. And it wasn't an issue for those who couldn't work or who weren't able to, but rather those who refused to. One man said this, a wise man. He said, a tree is known by its fruits and a man is known by his work. Reputation. 
testimony. Once a man was negotiating to buy a house, and he bought it without ever even seeing the house. And he was asked why he took such a risk to buy this house that he had never seen before. And his answer was this, I know the person who built that house, and he builds his Christianity in with the bricks. In other words, he was a good testimony in his good work ethic. And so Paul says, I hear that there's some who aren't working at all. This needs to be corrected. Work is actually a blessing. And there are some principles for us, amen, that we should glean from it. The Christian should be a more conscientious workman than anybody else, and it should be for Christ's sake. The second group of people that Paul is talking to is also found in verse 11. It says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. The second group that Paul is directing this correction to are those who are busybodies or also gossips. Now, the idleness of those who wouldn't work led to other problems. The word busybody here, it means to work all around. It means to bustle about or to meddle. It has the sense of one trifling about needless and useless matters, sticking his nose into other people's business. That was also considered a disorderly walk in the church. And by the way, the disorderly walk, the unruliness, the out of step, the irregularity, the insubordination, all of those things Paul says is worthy of discipline from a New Testament church. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. It's a big deal, according to the word of God. One man said, commenting on the evil of being a busybody. He said, busybodies are idle, yet busy. Idle as regards to their own work, but busy with the business of others. Ever meddling with what belongs not to them always counseling others and interfering with their concerns whilst neglecting their own. A character that is mean and degrading, the cause of much annoyance to themselves and of mischief to others. Well, that actually fits right in line with what the Word of God says. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. There's a, there's a chance that you're going to suffer a little bit for sticking your nose into other people's business all the time. But Paul, Peter says if you're going to suffer, make sure that it's not for that. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, and that ye studied to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.11, But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And with all, they learn to be idle, 
wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not to. In other words, they're gossips. And the connection is that busybodies and gossips go hand in hand. Too much time on their hands. Not enough to keep them busy. Paul disliked the busybody pretty intensely. Now, sin is sin, right? Sometimes we label the big sins versus the little sins, etc. But you know what? In our minds, we, we can project and we can look at some things that people do as these giant, horrific, horrible sins. And maybe it, sin is sin. It's horrific in God's eyes, right? But we don't see clearly when it comes to the issues uh, and the dangers and the challenges and the problems that being a busybody and a gossip can cause in a church. There may not be any other sin that causes more damage in a church than being a busybody and a gossip. It certainly disrupts the unity of a church. And Paul says that's part of a disorderly walk, and there's discipline that is warranted for the one who won't repent. Listen, a man who's doing his own work with his whole strength, he's not going to have enough time to be maliciously interested in the affairs of others. Because he's got his own work to do. So Paul says, this is a problem. And the idleness, not working, it's led to other problems. And these people are busybodies. And there's not room for that in a New Testament church. The third group that Paul is talking to specifically is found in verse 14. And he says, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. And I'm labeling this group the disobedient or the insubordinate. Paul says, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. So Paul is talking about the disobedient or the insubordinate. Now notice verse 6 as well. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. So again, we have the word disorderly. It means irregular. It means unarranged. It means out of order. It means insubordinate. But then we also have the word tradition in verse 6. They walk disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. That word tradition isn't how we would normally use the word tradition. Like we have our family traditions, you know, at Christmas time. That's not exactly what he's saying. The word means a transmission of a precept or a law. And what needs to be understood is that it's a transmission of a precept. It's not the creating of a precept. It's simply transmitting a precept or a law. And so when Paul says to, to uh, those that walk disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us, he's not talking about his own words. 
He's not talking about the things that he has created. It's simply the teaching and the transmitting of a precept or law that was created by someone else, which is the Lord. Because he speaks on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, they were living in a way that was not according to the apostles' teaching, but it was teaching that came directly from the authority of Jesus Christ. Now go to verse 12 again. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Now, for us, the application certainly is the teaching of God's word. It's not man's words or man's commands. It's living in a way that is disobedient to the command of Christ through his word. So several things fall under that category, friend. There's the idleness. There's the busybodies. There's the gossip. There's the backbiter. There's insubordination to God-placed authority. In verse 12, now we read verse 12, but look at verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man. And so what we're saying here is in the context of verse 6, the context of verse 12, the context of verse 14, it all has to do with the leadership of the church. Paul said in verse 6, the traditions or the teaching received of us. In verse 12, he says, them that are such, we command. And then he says in verse 14, if any man obey not our word. In other words, those who were insubordinate to the God-placed leadership of the church were guilty of being unruly and having disorderly walk. It was the teaching, though, that came from the Lord. That's the key. And that was a contentious spirit that was not healthy for the church, and it needed to be corrected. And so Paul give some instructions on what the church needed to do about it. Paul commands that those who disregard his instruction or his teaching that came from the authority of Christ needed to be dealt with by the church. But they were not to be dealt with as enemies, but as brothers. And the discipline that needed to be given, and here's, here's a principle for, for parents, principle for life as well. The discipline given by a man who contemptuously looks down upon the sinner and speaks to hurt, that may terrify them, it may wound them, but it seldom brings uh, reconciliation. It seldom brings about good. It's more likely to produce resentment rather than repentance. When Christian discipline is necessary, it's to be given as a brother, not in anger, still contempt for sin, yes, but always in love. And so Paul goes on to talk about some of this, and he gives some rules. What are you supposed to do? And we'll talk about these next time, but Paul says, these people that are such, you need to identify them first and then you need to separate from them. In verse 6, he says, withdraw yourselves from every brother. 
In verse 14, he says, note that man and have no company with him. Then you need to admonish them. Verse 15, count him as a brother, not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And then the third, it's implied in verse 15, is that you need to show love as a brother. And so we're going to talk about those next time, and we'll consider Paul's final remarks in verses 16 through 18 concerning God's peace that he gives, and then concerning God's grace. And I'm prayerful that these will also be encouraging and a blessing to you as well. Did you learn anything tonight? Did you gain anything? Well, hopefully, prayerfully, you did. It's God's word. If you didn't, that's your fault. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's good to be with you tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'd use your word in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you'd help to shape and mold us into the image of Christ. And Lord, give us your grace to submit and yield to you. Uh, Father, wherever those applications need to be made. And and Father, I'm thankful for the instruction that you give us in your word not only as an individual, as a person,